coming up on What Women Want to Know. There's this image of the black woman as strong and therefore people feel we can just handle anything, just pile it on, pile it on, pile it on. But no, not saying that we're not strong, but at the end of the day, there is a limit for everybody. I think it drives a lot of the healthcare problems that we have physically and mentally. What is the challenge to empowering women? It's getting them to understand that a manageable mental load is not optional. I'm your host, Dr. Adana, and this is What Women Want to Know, the show where we navigate the complex, fascinating, and sometimes intimidating world of women's health and well-being. Here, we create a safe, judgment-free space where no topics are off limits. We confront our fears, we embrace our vulnerabilities, and we find humour in the unexpected. Welcome to What Women Want to Know. Before we get into today's conversation, you know the drill. If you're not already part of this community, I am personally inviting you to join. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and turn on the notification so that you know when a new episode is live, which is every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. If you're listening as a podcast on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow along and please, please, please give us a rating and a review. Your feedback not only helps me, but it helps more women to find us, women who need to be part of this conversation. On the show today, we are venturing into an essential yet often neglected area of women's health which is equitable and inclusive healthcare, particularly for black women. Our discussion will shed light on the unique challenges and disparities this community faces in the healthcare system. We'll explore the impact of these inequalities on their health outcomes and delve into practical strategies for creating more equitable healthcare experiences for every woman, regardless of her background. Joining us in this vital conversation is Dr. Itunu Johnson Shogbetun, widely recognized as Dr. Sho, a UK-based general practitioner renowned for her dedication to women's health. As an advocate for inclusive and equitable healthcare, Dr. Sho has been instrumental in curating HEAL, which stands for Health Equity and Advocacy Learning a platform offering courses aimed at raising awareness and advocating for equitable healthcare for Black people. Dr. Sho is not just a healthcare provider, but a beacon of hope and change in the pursuit of equitable healthcare for all. At the Royal College of General Practitioners, not what women want to know, position her uniquely to provide insightful and transformative perspectives. So it's good to have you on the show today, Dr. Show. See how that rhymes? Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I have let the audience know about you and all of the inspiring work that you're doing, especially when it comes to your work in advocacy for healthcare equity. You're a very, very experienced UK general practitioner, and I'm curious in your training and your experience, what inspired your advocacy for the health of Black women? To start with, I think the first and the biggest inspirations come from the women in my lineage, actually. 
And I start with my great grandmother, who was a market trader, who sent my grandfather to school by working with her hands and selling things in the market in Ijebu. And then I go to one of my grandmothers, who was the first female Muslim lawyer in Nigeria, and the legacy that that brought. And then I go to my mother who founded one of the top international schools in Nigeria. So there's that legacy of hard work and education, a value for education that then brought me to medicine. But then when I got to medicine, there's another legacy in my family, which is healthcare challenges. I lost one of my grandmothers to breast cancer even just before I was born. My mom was only saved because she read in a Time magazine article about the signs of breast cancer. And so as a result of that, she was able to pick out the signs and that's how, thank God, really, she was able to get the treatment. So when I came into medicine, I came in with that knowledge that, you know, and so many people in my family have had hypertension, diabetes. So I came in with that knowledge of the baggage of health issues. And then I began to have health issues myself. I was 27. I was diagnosed with a blood pressure of 190 over 110. Oh no. So I was only 27 years old. And the only reason why I found out was because I was getting these headaches. And of course, getting headaches, I thought, let me check my blood pressure. But that was my privilege of knowledge. Mm. I could have had a stroke. I could have had a problem with my heart. Any of those things, I could have gone on to have kidney problems if that wasn't diagnosed and treated. Yeah. And I remain on treatment now. So it was all of those things. So I was on two sides of the aisle, really. Mm. I was a doctor, but I was actually also undergoing health challenges, which are some of the challenges that are more common in black people. We know that over 50% of black adults will develop hypertension by the time they're 50. That is huge. And we know that a lot of the time it goes undiagnosed. That's why it's called the soiling killer, because what ends up happening is people then get strokes, heart disease, kidney failure. And then we say, oh, sorry, they died young. Oh, it was their time. No, it wasn't. So that's the thing that drives me to say this medicine that I study, it's not just for me to sit down and say, oh, I'm a doctor. I need to spread the word so that people know about their risks. They know to look for these health problems. That's part of what drives me. I don't want people to be dying unnecessarily. And so you talked about being on two sides of the aisle. One side being that you have all these great women in your family who you also witness going through healthcare challenges. And then, unfortunately, you then went through that yourself at a very young age. How has that experience as a black woman influenced your approach to healthcare? Does that make you more vigilant when you see a black woman walk into your practice? It's everything because I have experienced so much of the adverse things that black women experience. I've been diagnosed with two autoimmune conditions. I've got polycystic ovarian syndrome. I struggled with infertility. I ended up having a preterm birth of twins that I lost. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is, obviously, it's 
was sad. And at the time it was very difficult to deal with, but I've been on that side of the aisle and I know. So whenever a black woman is coming in, I know that her risks are higher for some of these mm. things. And so, yes, I mean, for all my patients, different patients have different risks. That's why I practice culturally competent care. And I know we're going to talk about this, but culturally competent care is about understanding the background and the risk and understanding the cultural and the religious aspects of that patient it's not just black people i'm hyper vigilant for i'm also going to be hyper vigilant for my jewish patient who may have a higher risk of some of the cancers because they're more common in certain jewish populations i'm also going to be hyper vigilant for my southeast asian patients but for my black women because i know what their higher risks are so during you know even when they're preparing for pregnancy when they have women's health issues i'm letting them be aware of their risk and empowering them with the information so they can ask the right questions yeah, which is very, very important. Let's actually touch on the challenges in healthcare for black women. So for starters, what are the common health challenges that you see amongst black women in your practice? We have to put it into two brackets. So there's general health issues, women's health issues under the physical health, and then there's the mental health issues. Obviously, lots of different ethnicities have different challenges, but we know for a fact that black women have some of the worst health outcomes in these domains. So for example, with endometriosis, black women are gonna be diagnosed two and a half years later than their white counterparts. That's two and a half years more of the unknown and of pain. Also, we know black women are more likely to get fibroids. And instead of offering other wound sparing alternatives, a lot of the time they're pushed towards hysterectomies. Black women are more likely to suffer from infertility. And when they do have infertility, they're less likely to access treatment. A, reaching out for the treatment, but when they even want to access it, then there's limited options. So we have less sperm donors on the black community. We have less egg donors on the black community. And then also there's often a socioeconomic disadvantage. So all of those things within physical health, we know that, again, we talked about high blood pressure. Black women are much more likely to get autoimmune diseases. If you don't know what that means, it's when the body starts to attack itself. And actually, this ties in very well with what I talk about, which is the mental load that women carry. Because we know that stress is a driver for some of these things. And then now we come to mental health. So black women, the suicide rates are going up. We know that black women are more likely to have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, and they're also less likely to reach for help. And then I know you spoke with Dr. Katanga about some of the challenges from the religious standpoint in accessing health. It cannot be overstated how this can be a challenge in the black community, actually naming a thing as a mental illness. So there's these challenges that complicate things as well. It's multifactorial, right? On the one hand, there is the cultural element where we're still dealing with that within our communities of what to share and what to keep a secret because of the stigma and the taboos around it. And then you also have the educational gap. Healthcare professionals like us, cultural competency was not something that was really stressed during our education. So of course, what you don't see, you trivialize. And if all of the data, all of the research, all of the advertising, all of the images really do not target people from these communities, the chances of picking up on health issues early on then becomes 
a challenge because the diagnosis is left until last minute and then obviously then the treatment is left until last minute but then there is the other aspect that when people then try to access the healthcare system there are all of these barriers whether your condition is trivialized or is pushed away or it's misdiagnosed because of that lack of cultural competency what women want to know Let's actually touch on cultural competence in healthcare. What does that mean to you? So for me, cultural competency is about curiosity about the background of your patient. But as well as that curiosity, it extends to respect. And then beyond respect, it then further extends to utilizing that knowledge to provide holistic, personalized care. Let's give an example of a lady, we'll call her Aisha. So she's a black British, but she's from a Somalian background and she's Muslim. And she comes to see me with a problem with her periods becoming more painful. So they've been worsening over time, which should make me think about the possibility of endometriosis, of course, but other things like potentially fibroids and other polyps and things like that. So she's come to see me. Now, in addition to the fact that she's having heavy and more painful bleeding and the bleeding is lasting longer, there's an impact because she's Muslim. She's considered unclean whilst she is having bleeding and that impacts so many aspects of her life including her intimacy with her partner so not even thinking about that and some people might trivialize those symptoms and say, oh it's heavy periods take some ibuprofen you know th that does happen actually unfortunately rather than seeing it as something that's affecting almost all parts of her life she's not only dealing with the pain of the symptoms she's also dealing with the cultural impact on her life so it's understanding if you're not curious, if you don't ask questions, like for example, I worked in Northwest London. And so I have a great insight into the Jewish community. And there are actually some similarities in terms of bleeding and the impact it can have on their lives in the Jewish community as well. It actually also sometimes for those who are like very religious, they may not even be able to touch, not in a sexual manner, but actually physically touch their partner whilst they're bleeding. So imagine if they're having uncontrolled bleeding and you don't understand that impact. You know, some of these things are completely unacceptable. So you have to understand the cultural context to be able to give the right advice. And there's some treatments, like say, for example, a progesterone-only pill, which may give irregular bleeding. That's completely unacceptable. Even though that's one of the treatment options, that would be a completely unacceptable treatment option for this Jewish lady, for example. So again, how did I know this? So I learned it because I was curious from medical school, I made friends with people from so many different backgrounds. I was privileged to be able to go to medical school in the heart of the city of London. And therefore, the whole world was there for me to meet and engage with. And so I began to accumulate that knowledge of different groups of people. So that's one of the things that I think is core to cultural competencies, that curiosity, that care for what other people's stories are. But beyond that, we talk about the respect. So not only are you curious, but you're respectful. The way someone does or has the culture or the religious views, you respect that. You don't think your way is superior. I love that. I love that. That's very, very, very important. And I suppose this curiosity has led you to 
curate this platform now that you're championing Heal, right? Which is health, equity, and advocacy learning. And, you know, I know this to be a platform where you, you know, create content that really educates and raises awareness about certain medical conditions that are more common in certain minority groups than the other. What is your vision for the future? How do you think this will contribute to equitable healthcare. So we started off with Heal for Black People, which we launched in line with Black History Month in October 2023. And the whole point of that was to grab attention, to say, do you know what? This is actually about Black health equity because Black people have the worst healthcare outcomes in almost every specialty. And therefore, it's important that we shine a light. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about advocacy is what's actually happened in the Southeast Asian community. So a good 20 years ago, Southeast Asian people were more likely to get heart disease early on and also more likely to die. Now, they're still more likely to get it, but they're less likely to die. What is that? That is the power of education and advocacy. I told you about the story of my mom reading that magazine saved her life. Education is so powerful. Where might not be able to change all the socioeconomic issues, that's beyond my pay grade at the moment. But what I can do, what we can do, and what you're doing as well, is educate. Let's tell people. And not only that, let's fire them up. Because I am done with the Black community always looking externally for the help. No, no, no. People, we need to rise up ourselves and understand what are the issues that actually affect us and start making positive change. We need allies. Of course we do. But we have to be the change we want to see. Yeah, I love that. With your work in this space, a lot of it comes from the experience, the inspiration that you have from your surrounding. You talked about the women in your lives. We talked about your own personal experience, your education and your awareness of the statistics and how it affects, in this case, black people. So there is some relatability. There's a lot more motivation to champion this work. But we know that for this to make great impact, we need allies. We can't really have a healthcare system that is by black people for black people. That doesn't work, especially in a public health system. It's at the mercy of the healthcare professional that you encounter. And problems tend to arise if that person is not culturally competent, is not curious, and is not respectful of other cultures or communities that is different from their own. So how do you hope that this inspires more healthcare professionals to become advocates for equitable healthcare? I'm actually in the process of developing a course with a lovely lady. She's another much older and more experienced GP. We are working together to actually create this course, which is called Heal for Clinicians. And there's also a version for the clinicians that work in the private sector. And we are literally doing this to empower clinicians to learn because it's a learnable skill. Cultural competency can be learned because once you have the desire, you can learn about the certain health challenges that affect certain communities. But you can also learn to have an open mind because no community is a monolith. Within the black community in, in the UK, we have Africans, we have Caribbeans. And within the African community, we have, I mean, a Nigerian is very different from a Kenyan. I'm going to tell you that one for free. Yeah. 
So, and even within Nigeria, you know, an Igbo person, a Yoruba person, they're different, right? Yeah, yeah, and even yeah. then, you can't make generalizations. And then we have multi-generation. Like someone like me, I, I'll consider myself to be one and a half. I came to the UK at 15. You know, my husband, on the other hand, is a first-generation immigrant. My son is a second. Yeah. The cultures are different even within that. You know, so again, you can't make assumptions. You can have some certain core knowledge about ethnic differences in risk and things like that. And also some cultural understanding and religious understanding. But you also have to have an open mind and be aware that each individual is unique. And therefore, there is a personalized approach. That's how we do it. Yeah, the education we get is the foundation, but we know that it, it changes. It has to be unique to that individual. I hear you. So it's a scaffold for you to then build on your own, but you can learn the scaffold. As long as you're willing, you can learn it and we can teach it. And so that's what we're trying to do. What women want to know. Amongst the many hats that you wear and the many things that you do is being a medical school tutor. So you teach at the Queen Mary University Medical School about health inequity. How do you approach that learning? And I'm really curious to understand what sort of engagement you get in a class that is diverse. Oh, yeah, it's very, very diverse. Always has been, really. Well, at least in the recent past. The challenge is, and you're right, this matters to some more than others. So often there's a variable engagement, but that is exactly what we need because we need to capture their imagination. And the best way is through stories. So when I teach on the course, I like to give real examples because equity is not doing the same for everyone. It's actually doing what is needed so that everyone has the same access, which is very different. Some people need nothing. They are already well-educated. They can knock on the doors themselves. All they need is to be told what to do and off they go. There are also people who from their culture are very vocal about the most pressing medical issues they have, regardless of what part of their body it's affecting. And then there are others who need you to get on the phone and chase them up. So like, say for example, sometimes when I worked in a certain area, I had quite a few patients from the traveling community. Those patients needed a lot more input because they're very disengaged. So actually there's some similarities with the black community or with parts of the black community, some disengagement from the medical establishment, really needing to work on establishing trust. So again, it's variable what people need. So capturing that imagination is like a light bulb just goes off in their mind and they understand it's not about black or white. Anyone can be in need of equitable healthcare because I tell the story of one of my very close family friends who is a very successful white person, just wonderful person, very successful, but he's older now. And so when he was out of his comfort zone, he didn't get very good healthcare because they were kind of treating him just like any old person. So sometimes, even if you are quote unquote in the privileged set, you can experience inequitable healthcare for other reasons. 
And so sometimes it can be ageism. So the things that motivate health equity, it's about the situation. It's situational. So you need to think, what does this person need for me to be able to give them a healthcare that is standard because they have some situation that is causing them to have poor healthcare? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When we were talking about the black community, you mentioned that it's not just about people doing the work for us. It's about us looking internally to say, hey, what can we do for ourselves? So let's talk about empowering women in healthcare, especially black women. How do you empower black women to become advocates for their own health? What do you observe to be the common reasons why women or people in the black community are disengaged from the healthcare establishment. Anyone who follows me knows about the mental load that women carry. For black women, there's the mental load and then there is the additional minority stress that is combined together. And therefore, for a lot of black women, they don't even have the mental energy to care about their own health because they're so busy trying to make ends meet or even if they're not necessarily trying to make ends meet in terms of like economically they're trying to make ends meet in terms of energy literally there's so much they want to do there's so much they're trying to achieve it's a lot of the logistical thinking that we do for society plus there's this image of the black woman as strong and therefore People feel we can just handle anything, just pile it on, pile it on, pile it on. But no, not saying that we're not strong, but at the end of the day, there is a limit for everybody. And a lot of us are living at our limit or off the limits. And this is something that I'm super passionate about because I think it drives a lot of the healthcare problems that we have physically and mentally. What is the challenge to empowering women is getting them to understand that a manageable mental load is not optional. It is something we must all strive for. The way we think, oh, I have to try and eat healthily. I have to try and be physically active. The way we think those are part of things that we need to do to be healthy. We need to be thinking, I need to have a manageable mental load. You know, I went to a talk earlier this year. The writer, Afwa Hirsch, she wrote a book and I went to the launch. And she was talking about rest for the black woman. Boy, oh boy, that is our goal. I spoke about my ancestors, the women in my line. Those women have labored. Even my mom, she's labored so much. I want my mom to enter into rest. So even though she's successful, now she's in her 60s, it's still a challenge for her because we're so hardwired to work and work and work, to be like workhorses and not realize that actually lack of rest hinders our creativity. Lack of rest hinders our progress. Lack of rest affects our physical and mental health. We need to be rewiring ourselves and thinking, how can we achieve rest? And it's a complete mindset shift. Actually, on the conversation of rest, I remember that when we spoke last week, you talked about this burden that women have to achieve it all. Of course, you have women who are multi-passionate. You have people who consider themselves ambitious. You have women fighting for equality, not wanting to be perceived as lazy or weak. It's multifactorial. There's the culture. There's the self-fulfilling prophecy. There's the expectation. There are the socioeconomic factors around that. But you said that the danger is that a lot of women 
think they can have it all, but I think you wanted to change that narrative. You know what? You can have it all, but not at once. That's what women need to understand, right? So Oprah and Michelle Obama were having a chat. And these are probably two of the most iconic black women on the planet. And they both said it. We can have it all, but not all at the same time. And this illusion, in fact, let's actually ask ourselves the core question, what is all? What all means to me, Itunu, is different from what it means to you. Do you see what I mean? Now, we're both doctors, we're both wives, we're both mothers, right? But what all means to us is different. You know, even though we have similar backgrounds, we're both medical doctors. Like I'm still practicing, you are in full-time entrepreneurship. All of that, that word all is so loaded. And so I really would like for women to look inwards and know that they're not running anyone else's race. Like I said, my grandmother, the story of my grandmother having been called to the bar in 1953 in London, it sat heavy for so many years. It was a very difficult conversation with my parents because my mentor, actually, Professor Lokbade, from Lokbade, who is literally one of the greatest oncologists in the world, she's just incredible. So I wanted to be her. That was it. I found her out. It eventually worked out that she actually went to the same school as my mom, but I didn't know that. I wrote her an email. And I said, I want to come and work with you in Chicago. And she said, come, which was incredible, right? That kind of heart she has actually. And it's the same kind of heart that I have as well. I want to kind of impact the next generation. And that's how she impacted me. So I was going to be her. But then when I realized the cost, she is a clinician, an educationist. So she's a professor. She is also a researcher. She has a full research lab. She's also a mother and a grandmother now. So I was like, boy, I was not given the same capacity that she was. Yeah, it's about understanding capacity. That was something else that you mentioned, right? So after spectacularly burning out, I did try, but I burnt out like a light. I sat down and I said to you, what do you actually want to be? Like you can see, I love to talk, right? And general practice is about being interested in people. And I began to see that my personality is not really that of a researcher. I'm actually someone who sees patterns in people. Like general practice was actually the perfect fit. But I was just having that conversation with my family <laughs> and explaining that their daughter, who is super bright and could do whatever, is honoring her capacity and no longer going to be a PhD researcher is now going to do general practice and is very happy. Actually, I love what you've said. It's not that you have limited capacity. It's just honoring your capacity. So as humans, we have a finite amount of energy. Each person's is different. We're literally like a machine. In, out, in, out, right? So we're expending energy in our lives but we're also taking energy in. So expending energy in the things that you love, your job, looking after your family, those sorts of things, playing with your children, whatever that's expenditure. But then there's also the more negative expenditure, like unintentional social media use, taking out energy. And then there's the joy givers, like fun, laughter, spending time in nature. What a gift. What women want to know. What 
I'm taking out of this conversation is to empower women about their health is to let them do the much needed reflection to say, hey, it's okay to aspire to do and be all of these things, but you owe it to yourself to understand and to honor your capacity and to know like you said, you can have it all, but not at once. And I say this because I'm talking to myself here. In my 20s, you could not tell me this. I will argue with you. You couldn't tell me I couldn't have it all at the same time. I mean, sorry, my husband is having it all at the same time. But really, there is biological factors like pregnancy. He will never be pregnant. There is childbirth. There is motherhood. There is breastfeeding. There are all of the things that are required of women, depending on, you know, how you want to set up your family life, that is not expected of men or actually men cannot actually match. It's, it's not comparable. And, and I, I think another thing you said that I loved was... The danger of this, you know, feminism and equality that when we try to jump into this argument that men and women should be equal, that's not to say that equality shouldn't be something that we strive for in society, but also that there are things that women go through that have to be considered as something that slows down a phase of your life. And that's okay. And I know that that's a topic that you're very, very passionate about. The whole idea of the mental load that women carry. I hear you. Really continuing on the topic of your advocacy and all of the initiatives that you channel, I think one of them is that you're the diversity, equity and inclusion lead at the Royal College of General Practitioners. Because on the one hand, you're educating medical students. And on the other hand, you are championing this conversation amongst already qualified general practitioners. What are the initiatives that you've championed or how have you seen a difference in that space? So I'm the EDI lead in Northwest London in the college. And for me, it's really, really important that we have diverse representation within the profession and so that's a lot of the work that I do empowering GPs who have a diverse background and that's not only in ethnic diversity actually one of the things that I've, I've heartily championed is doctors living with chronic physical and mental health conditions because it's really important for me that those doctors are not lost to the profession you know I would consider myself to be in that category because we come into the profession with a bucket load of experience and empathy from having lived on the other side of the aisle so we are actually adding a lot to the representation as a profession to the community we're relatable and then of course with doctors living with physical and chronic health problems and disability there is huge intersections with being female being parents being from an ethnic background but also being from the lgbtqia community so there's all that diversity that is really important as an intersectionality that we are campaigning for, for people to be able to thrive despite having those problems. So that is something that I really champion in the college. But then we also champion health equity as well. So with all the things that we're talking about, female and black health equity, minority health issues, making sure that as a college, we're thinking about these things, we're producing educational material that is diverse and culturally competent, all those sorts of things. We're now going into the last leg of the conversation. And this is also another personal perspective that I want to get from you. 
because you talked about your journey and being fortunate enough to not only come from a family of highly educated, highly impressive women, but also that you were able to identify somebody who you thought you wanted to be like. Then you reached out to her and then realized... I'm going to honor my capacity here. There's a lot of young women, and I know this because I get a lot of all these messages, you know, about women who say, hey, you've inspired me to want to go into medicine, but here are my fears and here are my concerns. I've heard a lot that you're not going to have a life when you're a medic. You can't have a family. You can't combine your passions with family, with career. There's so much fear around that and some of it is very valid we know that being a healthcare professional is a very highly demanding job especially when you even go down the route of surgery but then so many women want to have families as well and they want to have a life what advice would you give to any young aspiring healthcare professional basically achieve your capabilities by honoring your capacity. That literally is the core of it. Professor Lokwade is still my mentor, by the way. She didn't throw me away because I decided I didn't want to do oncology. In fact, she was part of the convincing team of my family to say, do you know what? I actually think Itunu has made the right choice. And literally, I call her all the time. She's like a second mom. So it didn't change anything with our relationship. If anything, it deepened it because there was a newfound respect for what she's achieved. And also, she has been so much more transparent about what the cost really was for her getting to where she is. And she's one of the biggest advocates for mental load management in doctors. But then there's also a lot of the trauma that women experience. So they may not talk about it. Things like unexpectedly single. It deserves its own attention, but that's a challenge that a lot of women experience. And that's something that can come from their own feeling or from society's impression on them and them struggling with that dynamic. Then there's things like miscarriages. There's things like infertility. All of these burdens. So some women may not have had children, but they may have had infertility. And that's a reason why. So what you were saying about being a woman is so different. Our experience. So whether we have children or not, it's actually a very different experience to being male. Because there's all these complexities. So one of the things that Professor Lokwade has taught me, and I try and teach future generations, is stop competing with other people respect your lane i hear that but my question is really because we know the multiple challenges whether expected or unexpected that a woman would experience throughout her life but there are certain times in your life where you have to make decisions without even knowing what the future holds and then deciding to going to a profession such as medicine that's already a big deal it's already gonna be demanding a lot from your life anyway is that enough reason for people to say hey i'm not gonna go into this profession because i expect xyz to happen or are you saying do it anyway but then when the time comes where you realize that there's certain things that are beyond your control part of honoring your capacity is deciding to step back from something 
That's right. No, I am all about women achieving. In fact, I would hate to come across as saying to anyone, don't do something because you're afraid. Fear is a terrible demotivation. No, feel the fear and do it anyway. You've heard that statement. That is how I live my life. A lot of the time I'm doing this just ah, taking a step of faith. Ever since I decided to stop overthinking and actually making movement, like even starting this whole thing, Dr. Show Cares, and you know, now, you know, hopefully soon we're going to be launching the clinic. All of these things, they filled me with trepidation, but I'm like, where is the capacity? But I'm going to create it. You know, I drop some things, as you said, and find space for what I believe is the passion and what I believe is the next step. So please, do not hold yourself back. But what you must do is honor your capacity. So how do you bring the two together? Well, you do that by prioritization. That is the key. What is most important? So I have quite firm boundaries. I didn't always. This is new because it's so important. It's how I'm able to honor my capacity. So there's certain things that I cannot and will not take. Sorry, not sorry. But what I put myself to, you know, I'm going to put my heart and soul into it. So as I say, there's some things that only me, Itunu, can do. And that's part of what I want to do. So I'm going to prioritize those things. Number one on that list is being mama to my baby boy. And it doesn't mean that I'm doing all the cooking and cleaning for him. It's more that that intimacy of mother-child, I prioritize that and honor that. So I know what's going on in his world. And I make sure that he knows that anything that's going on in his world that he wants to tell me, he can tell me. So that's one of the most important things. I get help with other things. One might call the more practical side of motherhood. In order to be able to do what I do. I hear you and I'm with you. You know what? I, I really love the direction that this conversation took because we started off with you know, equity in healthcare and how, you know, ethnic minorities can access care and how we should have that conversation within our communities to raise awareness. And I really thought the entire conversation was going to go into what are the health inequities and how can we advocate and raise awareness, which is all important. But I would say that the most important thing that I've taken away from this conversation is really that awareness of the mental load that women carry, but most importantly, honoring your capacity. I think by far that is the most important lesson. And, and for us to do that is you realizing that having it all is a misconception that can really get a lot of us into trouble because that sentence is not complete, right? It's, you can have it all, but not necessarily at the same time. That doesn't make you a failure. That just makes you more intentional and actually more respectful of your capacity. And I love that. And I think that's the message that I want anybody listening today to take away. Health is multidimensional. It's not just about the one specific symptom you go to your healthcare provider with and that's why when we talk about this symptom or that symptom or that test it's important to look at it from a holistic point of view right what is that person's background what are the traumas that they're carrying what's the load how is their mental well-being what's their social situation at home because it's all a combination that if we're not 
mentally well, that's actually what creates the imbalance. That's really what affects our physical health. It really starts with the mental. I'm so glad that I, it, it seems like literally you're, you're now preaching my message. Girl, well done. That to show you've acquired a new follower. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. What women want to know. A big thank you again to Dr. Show for sharing her insights into this very, very important conversation and for taking out the time to join us on this episode. I'm going to leave all of the links to her social media platforms and all of the amazing work that she's doing. So make sure to check it out in the description bar to follow along. That's our show for today. Remember, your health matters and it's okay to talk about it. Until next time, I'm Dr. Adana and this is what women want to know.